Thank you, Pastor Billy. Thank you. Awesome. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Jeremy, you do owe me a lot. You're welcome, sir. You're welcome. It's Friday night, Bible conference time. Oh, my goodness gracious. What an absolute joy to be able to be with you. I finished uh, my lecturing this morning. Uh, I teach at Bushnell University uh, down in, uh, what is this, down up in Eugene uh, this morning. And I couldn't wait to get on the road, get some Dutch brothers on the drive and come and see you. It's a Friday night. We could be out partying. We could be out at a concert. We could be at a microbrewery. We could be doing anything but no. Oh, we're studying 2,000-year-old documents because we are Bible nerds together in Jesus' name. I'm so excited to be with you tonight, and I'm going to be with you as well on Sunday evening uh, for this uh, inaugural Bible conference. And I, I just want to say, first of all, uh, to, to Jeremy, this, this was your brainchild, and you made this happen, and you have a heart for this, and this is, I'm going to speak a word over this. This is the first Bible conference, and next year, it's just going to build and build and build, and this is going to be a part of a revival that God is doing in this city. And so, good job, Jeremy. Thank you for your heart for this. Thank you for your heart. So tonight, um, you know, in, in a way, um, I, I want to pre-apologize. Um, little did you know, you're actually going to get a lecture tonight. Um, I would love to preach, and I love to preach. When I was with you two months ago, I got to preach. But uh, for this evening, I'm actually going to be a teacher. Um, and I'm going I'm to put my preacher ministry aside for a few moments, and I want to be a teacher. Um, I'm a trained academic. My background is in the area of systematic theology. I did my PhD uh, in Britain at a university called the University of Birmingham, and studied um, and studied systematic theology. So I'm actually a trained uh, systematic theology. My job, my day job, if you can imagine this, is I get to be a Bible nerd for a full, full-time job. Um, I get to teach students at Bushnell University Bible and theology. Um, for any of you, and I just a little plug for a moment, uh, any of you that either know a 17 or 18-year-old who's looking to go to college, um, there has been on our campus at Bushnell like a little bit of a revival in the last couple of years. In fact, in the course of the last three years, I've had no less than 10 of my students get saved and baptized at the university. Um, there's been this just really beautiful spirit. And so there's no better place in the whole world to come study the Bible than Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. And so if any of you want to come and be a fellow nerd with me, we would love to have you. But tonight, I want to talk about something very specific, and I want to talk about something that I've spent the last couple of years researching, writing about, and I think is helpful uh, to you. This evening, uh, the title of my talk is Reading the Bible in an Age of Deconstruction. And, and what I want to talk about is how to read the Bible the way that Jesus reads uh, the Bible. And I'm going to ask, if possible, uh, if you have a copy of the Bible with you tonight, I'm going to ask you to find your way to Matthew chapter 5. I would encourage you to take notes, um, largely because we've actually learned a great deal about how the human brain uh, functions. We, we, I've actually uh, read a number of studies that have pointed out that when you physically hand write out your notes when you're learning, uh, rather than even typing, writing stuff out, your brain captures stuff way more when you, when you write it out with your physical hand. So I, wanna, I just want to free permission tonight. Take notes. 
Um, you have per- complete permission to nerd out on what we're going to talk about this evening. Uh, write out uh, notes and uh, to be as present. I want to pray one more time. God, tonight as we gather together this evening uh, for a lecture uh, in this inaugural uh, Roseburg Bible Conference, we ask Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, come. And we cry out, Holy Spirit, would you come here? And would you speak to your people? Would you guide us, shape us? Would you give me, God, the words to speak to this community of people who are investing their time and energy to be here and learn from you? But more than simply our ability to learn from these ancient documents that are inspired by the living God, we pray a prayer over Roseburg and the areas around us. And we cry out, Jesus, that this would be part of your move at this moment in time to draw people to Jesus and the cross. And that there would be even fruit that would come out of this conference of people that meet Jesus, of people that return to Jesus, and for our hearts to be once again attuned to the work of God. And so we come, Jesus, anticipating what you desire to do. We love you, and we need you at this moment in time. In the name of Jesus, would you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 4. I want to read uh, for a few moments. I want to read Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And uh, Matthew 4, you have four Gospels uh, in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John. We, uh, in New Testament scholarship, we we often divide uh, these these four Gospels into two main categories. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we often call the synoptic Gospels. That word synoptic simply means with eyes. And the idea is that when you read Matthew, Luke, and Mark, um, you, you begin to notice that a lot of the same stories are found in all four of those Gospels. Um, They actually tend to repeat each other's materials. In fact, there are points in which they actually almost seem to copy and paste the stories uh, into their own, largely out of an act of honoring. They're honoring each other's stories. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you find that the stories found in these three Gospels are very similar. And then there's John. Uh, John is uh, very different than the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, uh, if, when you take all the content, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you compare it to John, 90% of the stories that you find in the Gospel of John are found nowhere in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John has basically, he tells all these stories that all of these other gospel writers uh, just did not include in their stories. There's a bit of a debate around that as to why does John have all these other stories that other, the other gospel stories uh, don't have. So for example, when you look at John, it's really interesting. John is the only gospel that includes the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And you would go, man, if you had been with Jesus, that'd be the kind of thing you'd remember. You know, why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke not include that story? And kind of uh, what a a number of scholars have have contended is that because John was the last gospel that was written, he had had a lot more time to reflect on the story of Jesus. And so over time, that story became all the more important to include in the gospel because he had more time to, to think about it. Um, John is the only one that tells the story of Jesus turning water into wine. But each one of these gospels have their own distinct personality. Uh, When you look at, for example, Matthew's gospel, it's very clear from Matthew's gospel that he is writing to a Jewish audience. And the way we know that is that the way John, excuse me, the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus is he is always quoting the Old Testament as a way of showing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He is just an all-out Old Testament Bible nerd who is constantly quoting Old Testament texts as a way of saying, see, I told you so, Jesus is who I told you he was. 
Mark is one of my favorite gospels because it's super short. It's only 16 chapters. In fact, the most repeated word in the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. I often tell my students that if you have ADHD, you're going to love the gospel of Mark um, because ultimately it moves so fast. Jesus is always immediately going places to say nothing of the fact of how sort of simple the gospel message is in Mark. I call it the caveman gospel. Jesus, come, love you, right? It's just so simple. So, And then Luke, of course, Luke is a doctor. And you catch his personality through the Gospel of Luke when you specifically pay attention to the fact that Luke, above all the other Gospels, as a doctor, tells more healing stories than any of the other Gospels. So a doctor would see that sort of stuff. You know, a doctor is going to mention healing more than anybody else. And then there's John. And John is a poet. Uh, he begins his gospel almost like a, a poet at a, at a poetry fair. And he's like, in the beginning was the word. You can just see the Hebrew tattoos on his forearm. And he's been drinking coffee all day. He's cool, really tight jeans. He's that guy. Okay. And John is, is just a creative. He, he writes like a creative. And he's, he's got his own personality. Although it's interesting in John's gospel, he never names himself. He only calls himself by his nickname, the one who Jesus loves. But the point is, all these gospels have their unique distinction. And I want you to see Matthew's gospel because this is, this is portrayed. This is a classic Matthew way of telling a story about Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm going to pause for just a moment, just on that first line for just a second. You need to remember, before this story took place, Jesus had been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the River Jordan. Uh, there's been quite a, a bit written about the fact that both Mary and John the Baptist uh, and even uh, uh, Jude, the brother of Jesus, worship Jesus. Um, there's this kind of interesting uh, idea, Esau Macaulay at Wheaton University, he says, you know, this is one of the arguments for why Jesus had to be God, uh, largely because um, I have many, of, many cousins and I would not be willing to say that any of them are God. <laughs> John the Baptist baptizes his cousin Jesus and then gives all of his disciples to Jesus. It's very clear early on that John the Baptist worshiped Jesus. He saw Jesus as the Messiah. He knew who he was. In the story right before this, Jesus has been baptized by his cousin in the River Jordan. And by the way, the, the word the, in the River Jordan, that's an interesting thing. I was just lecturing about, about this this morning. This is the danger of having somebody who just finished a lecture come and teach. Did you know Jesus' name wasn't actually Jesus? Uh, Jesus' Hebrew name was Yeshua. You and I know that as Joshua. Uh, Jesus' original name was not Jesus Christ. If you looked at his birth certificate, it did not have Christ as his last name. Christ is a, is a Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. His last name would have been, essentially, he would have been called Yeshua, son of Joseph. Son of Joseph. He would have been Yeshua, Joshua, son of Joseph. It's very interesting because this is not the first time in the Bible that we have a Joshua who does something with the Jordan River. When you go back to the Old Testament, actually, it is a Joshua who leaves, leads Israel across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And so when you meet Jesus beginning his ministry in the Jordan River, all of a sudden your brain is like, wait, 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 wait. This isn't the first Joshua in a Jordan. Jesus is, has now just inaugurated his ministry in the River Jordan. He's come up out of the water, and the Father said to him, you'll remember this, and this is important for this story today. 
The father said to Jesus, this is my son, you are my son, whom I love and whom I'm well, and in whom I'm well pleased. And you'll remember the spirit comes and descends on Jesus. So right before this story was the story of Jesus being filled with the spirit and hearing the father anoint him with affirmation and love. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And again, this is Matthew telling the story. He is writing to a Jewish audience, and I'm entirely convinced that anybody that would have heard this story would have immediately remembered, this is not the first time that the devil has come and tempted a human being in this way. In fact, one of the first times that the devil comes and tempts somebody in the Garden of Eden, it doesn't doesn't turn out very well for humanity, does it? In fact, you are invited to see this story as another one of those temptation narratives. In the last time the devil came to somebody like this, it ended in humanity falling away from God. And so you come to this story and you're like, is it going to work out the same way? After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and this is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, what an understatement, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. In the Bible, the number 40 is always in reference to a time of testing. You'll remember how many years does Israel wander in the desert? About 40. How long is Israel in Egypt? 400, which is the multiplication of 40. 40 is a very important number. It's a time of testing. After 40 days, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, Jesus said, throw yourself down. I want to pause for just a second. Look at that. If you are the son of God, which let me go back for just a second. Did you notice both of the things that the serpent have just said? Begin with the question, if. If you're the son of man. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. And in this instance, look at this. The devil says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. In a way, if you were to zoom out and look at this story in the broader meta story of the Bible, you would very quickly discern that this is one of many times in the storyline of the Bible where the serpent or Satan are directly connected to what you and I would call an act of self-harm or suicide. Jump. When Jesus casts out those demons from the man who was, in, uh, uh, who was among the tombs, you'll remember, he casts the demons out. Where do the demons get, go? They go into the pigs, and then what do the pigs do? They jump and kill themselves. What happens to Judas after he is filled with Satan? He kills himself. And what does the serpent say here? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. I would contend that at any point where a human being, a human being is experiencing intrusive thoughts or moments of wanting to self-harm, that is never the voice of God. For it is written, he will command his angels. This is the serpent speaking to Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And when you finish the story, uh, which it actually continues, and I'll finish, I'll finish the end of the story because it doesn't appear to be up there. 
Again, the devil took Jesus to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, Jesus said, the serpent said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended Jesus. A lot of Christians, when they read this story, immediately think that this is an invitation for you and I about how you and I can defeat the devil. In reality, you can learn some definite, you can learn some things here about how we stand strong against the powers of evil. But in reality, this story is not a story about humans and how humans can defeat evil. It is actually a story about how humanity could not stand up to Satan and how only one person can, Jesus. It is not primarily a how-to. This is an invitation to see Jesus as the second Adam who could do something that the first Adam never could do. Even in his hunger for 40 days, Jesus is stronger than humanity who is in a garden who has all the food they've ever wanted. This is an invitation to see the power of Jesus. And what I want to do for a few moments in our time together today, what I want to do for a few moments is is I want to invite you to see this story as a way of understanding how we can learn to read the Bible the way that Jesus read the Bible. Because the way Jesus handles this encounter with the serpent is so incredibly, when it's understood properly, changes the way we read our Bible. But I want to set it up by by talking about our cultural moment, because the reality is we live in a moment in time where the Bible is, if we're candid, the Bible is under a tremendous amount of pressure, challenge, pushback. You know, years ago, uh, Martin Luther, uh, he was the Protestant reformer who uh, started the Protestant Reformation. Uh, He was once asked by one of his snarky undergraduate students, Dr. Luther, after God created in seven days, what was God doing on the eighth day? And Martin Luther is reported to have said that after God created in seven days, he created day eight. On day eight, he created hell for people who ask really silly questions. (laughs) That he had created on that final day a day of judgment for people who ask really silly questions. And, you know, my, my life in a lot of ways as an undergraduate professor at Christian University is to field a lot of really silly questions. But the reality is uh, we live in a moment where we've got more questions probably than we know how to deal with. Um, this summer, it was really interesting. Uh, my family made a decision uh, during COVID, probably the best decision we've made in our entire marriage, my wife and I, Quinn, probably one of the smartest things we've ever done was we uh, decided during COVID to buy a hot tub. <laughs> one of the greatest decisions we've, we've ever made. And it was awesome because every day we would sit in our backyard, we would have tub time, and my son, my 11-year-old son, 10 at the time, that would be when all of his questions would come out. Say, Dad, what about, what about like this thing? What about the Nephilim in the Bible? Like, what about like dinosaurs? Like, what about like all the questions would come out? This summer was really fun because we decided it was time for our 11-year-old son to hear about the birds and the bees. And if you're a parent, it's quite, quite the conversation to have with your parent, your kid. Uh, I remember when we, we kind of explained some of the details uh, I just have noticed he looks at his parents very differently now than he did <laughs> before the experience. We were on a road trip this summer, and because, you know, as a parent, talking, talking about hard things with your kids like, is a really important part of parenting, 
It's really important that you talk to your kids about this stuff. Because if you don't talk about it with them, YouTube will. You know, they're going to find out. They're going to talk about it somewhere with somebody. We were on a road trip, and uh, we had kind of explained some of the physical dynamics of the birds and the bees. And he's sitting in the back, and there's a silence. And he, out of nowhere, he asks a question. He says, so can you, like, can you, like, talk while you do it? <laughs> I, looked at, I looked at my wife, and, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I guess you can. 30 seconds of silence. Son asks, so <clears throat> can you, like, walk while you do it? <laughs> Yeah, that one's one's trickier. That one's trickier. I got to be honest. Those moments as a parent, those are like the most sacred moments for a parent. Because you know this as a parent, like one of the most important things about being a parent is that not necessarily that you have all the answers, because I just don't have all the answers. The most important thing for a parent is that your kid brings your questions to you. And the reality is, there's a lot of questions in our moment in time. I spend my time wrestling with college students who are asking all sorts of questions about sexuality and gender, about culture, about politics, about the number of times I've asked what the Bible has to say about marijuana. My life is questions. Questions. In the Gospels, uh, Jesus actually, he's the greatest question asker. Uh, Jesus asks a total. There was a guy from the London School of Theology named Conrad Gempf. He's a German New Testament scholar who studied the story of Jesus and looked at all the questions of the gospel. Gospels. Jesus asks 207 questions in the Gospels. It's a lot of questions. But on the flip side, even more interestingly, Jesus is asked a total of 183 questions. I'm curious, of the 183 questions that Jesus is asked, how many of them do you think Jesus actually answered? Any guesses? In total, Jesus, of 183 questions, Jesus only answered three of them. And one of the reasons why, to be truthful, is more often than not, when people ask Jesus questions, they were not asking because they wanted an answer. They were trying to trap Jesus. It's really, really hard to give a good answer to a bad question. And Jesus knew that. One of his most distinctive marks is how many times in the Gospels he's asked a question and he asks a question right back. It's classic Jesus. The questions. We live in a moment in a time where James K.A. Smith, who's a philosopher at Calvin College, he says, we live in a moment in time when everybody is a doubting Thomas now. Everybody has the questions. Everybody wonders. Everybody wrestles with what is true. 
A number of years ago, I was pastoring in Portland, uh, and I got an email from a guy who had just moved to Portland. Uh, he um, Basically, his background is he sends me this email, and he says, hey, I'd love to pastoring a church in Portland that my wife and I had planted called Theophilus, and he emails and says, I would, I would love to meet for you, meet with you for coffee. I said, I'd love to meet for coffee. So we meet at my, point, in my office. Um, by the way, some of the details of the story I'm going to change for the sake of posterity. I've, I, it's a real person, but I'm changing some of the details for the sake of the story so that you don't actually know who it is. But he emailed me. He says, I'd love to meet for coffee. I said, let's meet. So we're meeting in my office. And he tells me a story. He was raised in a, in a really incredible uh, sort of uh, middle America, conservative Christian home, loved Jesus. He was raised in a family, great uh, evangelical Christian home, loved God, loved the Bible, loved the church. And he just moved to Portland and got a tech job at one of the major tech firms. And uh, he wants to find a, find a church. So he's like, hey, I want to plug into the church. I'm super jazzed to be here. He wants to be on the sound team. I'm super jazzed. We needed volunteers. It was a brand new church. It's a win-win for everybody. So I'm think, we're thinking of ways that he can be a part of the church. And I'm super jazzed he's to be with me. And um, we're strategizing. You know, you can be a part of the small group. We'd love to connect you with our worship team and all this stuff. All this stuff is great. And Phil, we end our conversation. Phil leaves my office. And about... Um, next couple weeks, uh, I see Phil come to church. And then I just begin to notice that Phil kind of disappears. And uh, Phil uh, no longer's there. He'd come for a couple weeks, and then he sort of disappeared. And I wish uh, this wasn't the case, but um, I forgot about Phil. And the reality is, we, it was a growing church. Uh, I, I didn't have all the margin in the world, and so I kind of forgot about Phil. And uh, Phil sort of left, disappeared, never saw him again. About a year later, uh, I get an email from Phil, and it's the same, uh, same young man, and he wants to meet for coffee again. And he says, hey, it's been a year. I don't know if you remember me. I'm like, yeah, I don't either uh, remember you. Yeah. But then I was like, ah, I remember you. Yes, uh, let's meet for coffee. And uh, he comes back into my office, and we meet for coffee a second time, nearly a year later. And I just noticed when Phil comes into my office, he looks very different. He looks like Portland now. Uh, he's got tattoos on his tattoos, of his tattoos, m- way more earrings than he had before. His jeans are significantly tighter than they were previous. And he just looks like Portland. And Phil sits down with me and he begins to tell me his story and what happened over the course of a year. Uh, he tells me that by moving to Portland, you know, at first it was great. He loved coming to church, but then all of a sudden he started sort of feeling homesick. He'd lost his community back home. Things were really hard. He started losing his family, his friends, uh, in terms of he wasn't close to them, so keeping up with them was really hard. And then he tells the story of moving into, uh, uh, moving in with a new roommate. He'd met somebody at the tech firm where he worked. His name was Charles. And so he moves in with Charles, and Charles, uh, they become really good friends, and every night they stay up and just talk. And And Phil finds out that Charles is actually a secular humanist. He's an atheist who had been raised in a Mormon home but had left his faith and now was sort of this this atheist. And every night they would just sit up and talk. And Phil says that we would talk about religion and the Bible and all this stuff. And he goes, like, Charles was just like this brilliant guy. Like, he was just brilliant. He knew everything, quote, about religion. He knew everything about the Bible. He was just like this brilliant guy. And he says, he goes, the hardest part of Phil sitting in my office, he goes, the hardest part was how incredibly kind Charles was. He was just the kindest guy in the world. And he goes, like, when you've been raised in a home that made you think that, like, atheists are, like, the worst people in the world who, like, wake up in the morning and barbecue kittens, <laughs> when you've been taught that atheists are horrible people, 
And then all of a sudden you meet one that's like generous and kind. It really messes with you. It really messes with you. And he's like, this guy, he's like the kindest, he's the kindest guy in the world. And we would just sit up and, and Charles would like explain to me like problems with the Bible and everything that was wrong with Christianity. And, and he was just so kind about it, but he knew it all. And so Phil is all of a sudden, he's asking all these huge questions and he, and he doesn't know what to do with them all. And he says, you know, I didn't have a pastor to talk to. I didn't have friends. So he goes, my life just became one big podcast binge. I just listened all day long, two times speed, podcasts all day long. Life became one big podcast binge. And he started asking all these questions about his faith and the Bible that he just had no idea what to do with. And he's sitting in my office, and I I could just begin to sense the the kind of the tone in the conversation shift a little bit. And he and he looks at me and he and he goes, he goes, you know, I've got all these questions about Christianity, AJ, and and I want to love God. I want to love God, but I've got all these questions. And I just could feel, I I saw a small tear begin to come down his face. And he looks at me and he says this. He says, AJ, I want to love God, but I've got all these questions. And then he says, he says this line. He says, I've got all these questions. Am I still allowed to be a Christian? And at that moment that he said that, I knew exactly I was not talking to a person. I was talking to a generation. A generation of people that have all of these questions, but they don't know what to do with them. Um, I've spent the the better part. In fact, I wrote a whole book about this uh, called After Doubt, which is a book about how to handle this idea of what we call deconstruction. And deconstruction is basically this idea of what happens when somebody begins to undo what they think about God. What what do we do? What does that look like when somebody deconstructs their faith, when they begin to question their faith? And the reality is, I think for a lot of us, when we think of deconstruction, we immediately think of like horrible things. Like if somebody is deconstructing their faith, clearly they're walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from God and they're going to hate the church. But what I've actually found is that for many people in our world, I'm not saying this is universally the case, but I've actually found that for a lot of people that are questioning their faith, often they're not doing it because they don't want to know God. Often they're doing it because they want to know God. Not all the time but sometimes. You know, the reality for all of us is that we are all on a journey. We are all learning about God, right? We're all on a journey of learning about God. My friend Jerry Root, who teaches uh, at Wheaton University, he has this great story where he says, you know, there's going to be a moment when we all enter God's presence in heaven. We will enter the presence of God. And he says, you know, what is the first thing we will all say when we see God? And we see heaven. He has this really funny thing. Uh, Jerry Root, by the way, is the, one of the leading scholars on C.S. Lewis in the world. One of the funnest things I've ever had the chance to do was go to breakfast with, with Jerry Root and my son and just talk about the Chronicles of Narnia. It was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced in my entire life. And we're sitting there and he goes, you know, he, he says, AJ, what do you think the first thing will be when we, when we enter the presence of God in heaven? And I said, I don't know. I've never thought about that. And he says this. He says, here's what I think is going to happen. I think we're going to enter the presence of God and the first thing that will happen is we will enter heaven and we will all look around. And the first thing that will happen is we will all say, Oh. Right. That at that moment, at that moment, 
we will see everything as it is. But until then, we won't. The reality is, right now, we do not see perfectly. Right? We don't, we don't see God perfectly right now. Right now, we have thoughts about God and theology. But then, when we see God, we will see God as he is. And it will all be clear. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Karl Barth, who is famous in church history for having written the longest systematic theology in the history of the church. 10 million words long. Before he died, he was asked, what's your favorite part of your systematic theology, church dogmatics? And he famously says, I'm not entirely sure because I don't even know if I've read the whole thing. <laughs> Near the end of his life, he was being interviewed about his systematic theology, church dogmatics. And he's, he's asked, like, what was it like writing? And he, he, apparently he laughs as he responds. This is his response to the question. He says, in heaven, we shall know all that is necessary and we shall not have to write on paper or read anymore. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my theology, church dogmatics, over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. <laughs> what is his point? His point is this. Right now, I have theology, but then I will have God. The reality is, you know, uh, Madeline Lingo, one of my favorite writers, uh, she writes about this experience. She says, actually, in a marriage, this is what marriage is, right? You get married to somebody, and you think you know who they are, and then you get married. And you spend the rest of your life realizing you don't know who you married. I've been married for 19 years, and my wife has had a very long time to think about that decision. And the reality is, the more I think I know my wife, the more I realize I don't know her, and I've got a lot more to learn. Madeline Lingle once said about marriage, it takes a lifetime to learn somebody. How much more is that true about God? It will take eternity to learn God. But right now, we do not know perfectly. This is exactly what Paul writes when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he says this, he says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then, he's talking about heaven, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I am fully known. Notice that phrase, face to face. At the beginning of the Bible, when humanity is created, they could see God face to face. In fact, God walked in the garden with them. When they are banished from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, by the way, the word banish in Hebrew is the same Hebrew word as divorce. When they are banished from the Garden of Eden, from that point forward in the Old Testament, have you noticed that nobody wants to see God's face? Do you know why? Because anybody who see, sees God's face, they die. In fact, in the Bible, people are like, please don't show us your face. Moses is the only one bold enough to ask, can we see your face, God? And God says, no, but I'll let you see my backside. Because <laughs> you can't handle my face. You can't handle it. Jack Nicholson was right. We cannot handle the truth. In the Old Testament, if you saw God's face, you would die. Then comes Jesus. In the Old Testament, when you see God's face, you die. But now Jesus comes, and we behold his face, and he dies on a cross. 
In the Old Testament, when we saw God, see God's face, we die. But in the New Testament, we see God's face and he dies on the cross. And Paul is writing about a moment when we will see him face to face and no one will die. We will be returned to Eden. This is exactly what John wrote about when he says, when we Christ appears, we shall see him as he is. Right now, we do not see perfectly. We cannot. It is impossible for us to see perfectly right now. But we long for the day when we will see him perfectly. We long for the day when we will see him perfectly. I call this the theological journey. And the reality is the theological journey for all of us is a moment in our life. It's the journey of following in love with Jesus. It's the journey of learning about God. And friends, the theological journey takes an entire lifetime. None of us get there quickly. It takes a lifetime to get to know God. The experience of having moments in your life when you love God and you realize that you've been wrong about stuff. Have you ever had moments in your walk with Jesus when he has pointed out stuff where you've realized you were wrong about stuff? If you haven't, you're not a Christian yet. <laughs> the journey of following Jesus is realizing time and time and time and time again how little you know and how big God is. I just did the craziest thing in the world and took some of my old sermons and put them in my Evernote files, and I was reading old sermons, and I could not believe God let me preach some of those sermons 10 years ago. <laughs> it's the journey of being on the path with Jesus. And the reality for all of us on that theological journey, we all learn that there are moments in our life where we, where, we, where we believe things, we question things, and we come back to things. You think about it this way. Um, when I think about the theological journey, I think about it this way. The theological journey starts with what I call construction. And construction is this. They're the moments in our life when we were handed the faith. Those times in our life when somebody gave us our first Bible. Uh, for me, I was 16 years old. I was in my math class in high school, not raised in a Christian home. And the girl behind me in math class was arguing with another girl about when Jesus was coming back. They had been reading a book called the Left Behind series. I had never, ever read the Bible. I went home. My dad, who's a Buddhist, had given me his Bible, and I sat down, and I read my Bible for the very first time, and I encountered the living God. Changed my life through the Bible. I started going to a conservative Baptist church. They gave, me, uh, they gave me some important books. They gave me some literature. They taught me about the Trinity. They force-fed the Bible to me, all these good things. It showed me things that I needed to repent of. It was awesome. I was on the way. My faith was growing. I was building my faith construction. And that same community, I thank God for that community. They taught me how to follow Jesus. But it also turned out, they also gave me some things that weren't very good. They also gave me a really, really, really low view of women in the church and basically handed me a view of women that said that they're footnotes in the story of God. And the reality is, that same community that taught me how to follow Jesus also gave me some stuff that wasn't that good, that I had to undo. Because I found out that the things that they'd given to me, some of it wasn't good. Some of it was awesome. Some of it was really bad. And I had to learn what my grandma taught me. You got to learn to eat the meat and spit out the bones. <laughs> Deconstruction, in many respects, are those moments in our life when we question the things that we've been given that we realize we're not Jesus or scripture. 
that it's okay at moments in our life to question those beliefs we are given, not because they're wrong, but because authentically to follow God is to want Jesus over our ideas of God. Friends, sometimes we love our ideas of God more than we love God. To love God means that you are willing to put all of your ideas before the fire of God in order those ideas to be changed and transformed. There's good deconstruction, which is the form of questioning things so that you can come to God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, the truth is there's also bad deconstruction, which is when a student sits in my office and says, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus anymore, and I don't know if I believe in the Bible, and it becomes very clear that really what's going on is they want to sleep with who they want to sleep with, and they want to smoke what they want to smoke. And then, friends, that is not good deconstruction. That's called apostasy. But there are moments, friends, there are moments when it is really healthy to question your beliefs. But that's not the end of the journey. There's also moments when we, when we need to come back, reconstruction, coming back to the story of Jesus, returning to who Jesus is, coming back to those, those beliefs. It's such an important part of our journey. In our moment in time, though, so much has been about deconstruction. Questions, 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 questions. And here's what I want to ask. I'm going to, I'm going to zoom past. Here's what I want to ask. I'm going to zoom past a number of my things here because of the fact that they didn't give me four hours to talk, <laughs> which is not their fault. It's more my fault than anything else. Um, is there are moments in our life when actually our encounter of God causes us to question our beliefs. And the, the, what I mean when I say that is this story in Isaiah. Do you remember when Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees God for the first time? You remember that? He walks in and he sees God and this is what he says. He says, woe is me! In Hebrew, he literally says, oy vey. <laughs> woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you know what's happening for Isaiah? He's realizing that before this experience, he had ideas of God. Now he's got God. It's the same exact thing that happens with Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22, when the people of God had forgotten the law of God, and, I, and Josiah sends Shaphan, one of his right-hand right-hand guys into the temple and they find the law and they bring the Torah scroll to Josiah and Josiah realizes that the people of God had forgotten the law of God and they come back to God. Moments in our life, moments in our life where God makes himself so known and so clear. Look at what Jesus does. I want you to see, first of all, going back to the very beginning of the Bible, I want you to see this, that when the serpent comes to the man and the woman in the garden, look at his first question. Did God really say? Did God really say? It's interesting that the first thing the serpent says is a question. It's a question. Did God really say what, you're, what you think he said? It's an interesting question. He says, did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's a really interesting thing to say because God never said that. He never said, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. In fact, God had said, you can eat from any tree except for one. The serpent here, in his first move, asks the man and the woman a question. Did God really say? Did God really say? I want you to see how Jesus responds 
to the way that the serpent tempts him. Because ultimately, I think the way Jesus handles this is the way you and I should handle our moment in time and all the questions that we have about the Bible and about God. I want you to see three things. Number one, I want you to see that when Jesus is tested, he guards the Bible, he guards the text with his whole life. I want you to see, secondly, that not only does he guard it, but Jesus honors the text of the spirit of the text. And thirdly, Jesus shapes his entire identity around the text. Let's look at these. So first things first, Jesus guards the text with his life. Um, in these in these temptations that are recorded uh, in Matthew's gospel, we notice a few things about uh, the way that Jesus responds to uh, the serpent. I want you to take a look at this. Notice what Jesus does. So first things first, when Jesus responds to the serpent, I want you to notice uh, that he says it is written. In fact, he says it three times. It is written. Uh, this is basically Jesus's way of saying the Bible says. Uh, he is quoting the Old Testament. He is quoting the Old Testament. It is written. Jesus' immediate response is to say, well, this has been written about. God has spoken about this. When the serpent tempts Jesus, he says, it is written. God has written it. This has been done. This has been done. This has been revealed. It's been written. I also want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus, three times in his response to Satan, quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know how many of you woke up this morning quoting Deuteronomy, (laughs) but Deuteronomy for you and I is an obscure Bible text. But for Jesus, it was the lifeblood of his entire existence. There's a really big lesson to learn about this, and that is that there is no such thing as an obscure Bible verse. The entirety of the Bible is for Jesus, entirely true and worthy of basing your life on. I want you to see this too. I want you to notice that Jesus quotes the texts from Deuteronomy by heart in his response to the serpent. He knows them. They're in his heart. He doesn't have to get out his Bible app. He doesn't have to pull out a Bible. He doesn't have it tattooed on his forearm in Hebrew. He knows it in his heart. He quotes the text by heart. He, it's in him. It's a part of him. It's, 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 he's metabolized, in the words of Eugene Peterson. He's metabolized scripture in his heart. I also want you to see this, that he quotes really short texts, really short texts, versus the devil who quotes really long texts. I'll come back to that in a second. I also want you to see this, that Jesus assumes the authority of the Old Testament. He assumes that the Old Testament is worthy of basing his entire existence on. He sees authority in the text. Now, Jesus, right, he he spent, Philip Yancey in his book, he says, what you and I call the Old Testament is the Bible Jesus read. The Old Testament was, were the texts that Jesus spent his entire life living off of. These were, he would have learned these as a kid, but to say nothing of the fact that he's the God of the universe who inspired it before he became a human. But he, he lived these texts. He, he embodied these texts. When Jesus dies on the cross, he quotes these texts. He quotes, quotes Psalm 22 on his death. They were his life. And he spent his life protecting them and guarding them. In fact, look at this. In Matthew 5, you'll remember this. Jesus does this often, where Jesus is teaching something, and he'll say, you have heard it said, da-da-da-da-da, but I say to you, da-da-da-da. And what he's doing there is he's critiquing bad interpretations of the Bible, and he's saying, you guys have been reading this text wrong. Let me give you the true meaning of the text. Jesus never questioned the Bible. He questioned bad interpretations of the Bible. In fact, he's always questioning traditions around the Bible so that people could come back to the Bible. 
He guarded the Bible with his heart. He loved the Old Testament. This is really interesting. Look at this. Um, Have you ever read this? This is Genesis chapter two, verse 24. This This is an interesting line. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Do you remember who this line, what this commandment or this thing, who was this given to? The man and the woman, Adam and Eve. The man and the woman. That is a very weird line to give to people who don't have mothers and fathers. When God says that, he says it to people who don't have mothers and fathers. Adam and Eve didn't have a mom and a dad. What's the point? We guard the text, even if it doesn't apply to us, because it applies to the generations that come after us. We don't care about the text because they only apply to us. We care about them because they apply to all people. To guard this text, this this is another interesting one. Look at this. Do you remember this line, Genesis 1, when God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Do do you notice the pronouns, us, our, our? Do you notice, do pronouns matter? Because ultimately what's going on here is this, this is a signpost to the Trinity. You know, the rabbis, this is interesting, because the rabbis and the Jews who composed these texts did not believe in the Trinity. They, they were monotheists. They only believed in one God. And what's interesting about that is that the rabbis, you, when you read the rabbinic commentaries who are copying this, bu- this, this book, every time they copy it, they're like, we're copying this stuff down, and we don't know why the us and our is in there. And like, we don't get it, but we're going to guard it because it's God's word. It is worthy, here's the thing, it is worthy of being guarded even when you don't get it. Even when it doesn't make sense, it is worthy of guarding. Jesus guarded the Bible with his life. Here's the problem, is that we often only guard and protect the parts of the Bible that we like or the parts of the Bible that make sense to us. And when we do that, this is what we end up doing. This is a picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Um, It is in the Smithsonian Institute. You can go see it for yourself. Thomas Jefferson was what we call a deist, which means he didn't believe in supernatural activity. It's really hard, by the way, to believe in the Bible when you don't believe in supernatural activity. And so you know what Thomas Jefferson did? He took his Bible, and any reference in the Bible to a miracle or a supernatural event, guess what he did with it? He cut it out with his own scissors. You can go see it for yourself. He loved the Bible to the degree that it said what he wanted it to say. Here's another example. Slave owners in America loved it when the slaves read their Bible. And the reason they loved it is because when slaves read their Bibles, the slaves found hope. And so slave owners wanted their slaves to have Bibles because when they had Bibles, they kept going. They worked hard. There was only one big problem for the slave owners. The Bible has the book of Exodus. which is the story of God freeing slaves. And so slave owners took a Bible and cut out all the parts in the Bible where God frees slaves and gave it to the slaves. And they called, they called them slave Bibles. And what it is, is it's somebody taking the parts of the Bible that fits with what they're doing and passing along what works for them. And I got to say, friends, our task, our task at this moment in history 
is not to guard the parts of the Bible that we like. It's not to guard the parts of the Bible that make sense. Our task is to take our cue from Jesus and to guard the entirety of the text because everything that it holds, God has spoken. And even if it doesn't apply to you, it is worthy of guarding with your life. Are you with me? Are you with me? Jesus guarded it. Not only that, but Jesus honored the spirit of the text. Jesus honored the spirit of the text. Now, this is interesting because when you look at what Satan says in response to Jesus, it's really fascinating to notice that Satan quotes the Bible too. Apparently, Satan knows the Bible in his heart. He's memorized it. And he even quotes to Jesus, Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's an interesting line to quote, Psalm 91. It's from the Bible. The only problem is that when Satan quotes it and you read it and it's an original context, chapter 91, guess what? He leaves the whole line out. The whole psalm says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. When the serpent quotes the Bible to Jesus, he leaves an entire line out. And he does it because the serpent never knows how to honor the intention of the text. He always twists it for his own purposes. The heart of this, the heart of Satan is that Satan deplores the intentions of God and he will always twist what God has said for his own purposes. He always will. He does not know how to quote it in the way that it was intended to be quoted. When you look at Satan, it's fascinating. Satan quotes scripture. He knows it really well. He quotes it from memory. Even Satan assumes the authority of the Old Testament. What's really weird is how few Christians, it's often that I read Christians who will say things like the Old Testament doesn't really matter all that much anymore. Do I really need to read it? And I want to say, how ironic is it that Satan believes in the, old, the authority of the Old Testament when we don't? That's creepy. Satan quotes really long texts. He doesn't, it's not about the length. He quotes the long text. Jesus quotes short texts, but Satan quotes long texts. Satan twists the text to fit his own needs at the moment. And here's what's even more dark is that Satan always uses scripture to insinuate. Look at this, back to that line. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God had never said that. He insinuates. He insinuates. He, he, he puts an assumption in his question. He, he sneaks in a lie. He sneaks in a lie. I have often found in my own life that the serpent is really good. I have found that usually, and you'll experience this too as you follow Jesus, it's weird how often I find that forces of darkness quote the Bible at me. This line right here, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. I've read this for years. I gotta be honest, for 20 years of my Christian life, this verse created shame in me because I thought it meant that I could never live up to God's expectations. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I've read that as meaning I'm a complete failure when the heart of this passage is I am already perfect because I'm in the father's love. But in my heart for years, the enemy has used that as a way of beating me down and making me feel like I am nothing. That is not the intention of this line right here. We are perfect because we're in Christ. 
The serpent always uses scripture. Here's another one that I get all the time. Uh, in Genesis 3, you remember this line when God telling the woman and saying to the woman, because of sin, the man will rule over you. I can't tell you how many young women I've had to lead through this passage to remind them that God is not commanding that. He's grieving it. He's not commanding it. He's not saying men should rule over women. He is saying that in a world of sin, men will come and rule and God's heart is broken. The misuse of this text to, quote, put women in, women in their place. It's not God's heart. It's not God's heart. And I want you to see this. So Jesus protects. He protects the, the spirit of the text, the intention of the text. And I want you to see this, that Jesus shapes his entire identity around the text. And here's how I know that. Look what the serpent says. If you are the son of God. Now, why would the serpent say this to Jesus two times? If you're the son of God, why two times? Why? The only way you can understand this is you've got to go back to the story that we just heard about. Jesus comes to the river Jordan. The spirit falls on Jesus. And what does the father say to Jesus? This is my son. Jesus just heard the father affirm and love him. And the first thing out of the serpent's mouth is he says, are you really the son? The enemy's number one attack is to go after the identity of Jesus. When you take this story and you compare it to Genesis chapter 3, there are all of these connections between the two. It's absolutely insane. When the serpent says to Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you the nations. Listen to that. I will give you the nations. Go back to Genesis 3 when the serpent comes to the woman. If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Who was already like God? The woman who was made in the image of God. If you bow down and worship me, I will give you the nations. Who already had the nations? Jesus. The enemy's number one task is to offer you a gift of something you already have in God. Jesus' entire identity is shaped by what God has said about him. What if you and I had the same tenacity at this moment in time? That we could wake up in the morning and say, I am God's child. In John's gospel, he never names himself, but you know what he does do? He gives us his nickname. You know what John calls himself in his gospel? The one who Jesus loves. That's all he calls himself. The one who Jesus loves. I've always found it hilarious that none of the other gospel writers give him that same nickname. It's as if they were saying, we had nicknames for him, but that was not what we called him. 
he calls himself the one who Jesus loves. His entire identity was forged around who he knew Jesus was. Jesus loved him. The enemy will always seek to cause you to question if you're really saved, if you're really loved, if you're really God's kid. Jesus' life was forged on what the Father said. Friends, you and I at this moment in time have to guard our sense of identity before God. We must. And Scripture plays a massive role in that very idea. Look at this picture. I started just a few minutes ago telling you a story about a friend of mine named Phil. I want you to look at this picture. Do you see that really handsome guy on the left? (laughs) That guy, whoever that guy is in his full-on midlife glory. (laughs) Next to the really cool guy is um, that guy's wife. It's my wife, Quinn. Uh, She's my best friend. Um, right next, you're going to notice on the right is uh, this little guy, uh, Elliot. That's my son, the coolest kid you'll ever meet. And the guy with his armor on my son, that's Phil. That's Phil. I took this picture about a year ago. Uh, Phil came down to Eugene to see us. And the story with Phil, um, I walked with Phil for about seven years. And uh, this picture right here is Phil coming to church with us. Phil just graduated with his degree from Portland State University, and he wants to be a psychologist for Jesus. Uh, he, um, he is not perfect, but this picture right here represents, it, it, you can't see it, but this, this picture represents thousands of texts, hundreds of 4 a.m. phone calls, thousands of dollars in coffee appointments, the amount of time and energy to walk with this young guy, Phil. He doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have everything figured out. But that is a young man who has walked through deconstruction and knows the Father's love for him. He knows God loves him, and he knows who he is in Jesus. And I show you this picture. It does feel like we live in a moment in time when everybody is asking all the questions. And I share this picture as a way of saying we live in a time when everybody's shredding the the truth, they're shredding the Bible, they're questioning everything, and I get it. But I, I bring this picture as a way of saying to you that when we faithfully hold true to what God has said and love people well, people walk through the fire and keep following Jesus as a result of it. We live in a time when all the questions are being asked, but I want to declare as a friend to you that when we actually hear what God says and actually choose to base what we think on what God says, God is faithful and true even in times when everything feels like it's changing. The unchanging God for a moment of profound change. I invite you at this moment in time Please, for the sake of the mission of the church and for the sake of the kingdom and our witness, don't change the Bible to fit your feelings. Don't change the Bible for our moment in history. Guard it the way Jesus guarded it. Protect it. 
Lay your life down to serve its well-being and its truthfulness. God made us in his image. Things get really bad when we return the favor. When we create a God that fits what we want rather than the God who is. Are you with me? I want to end with tomatoes. You know, I've lived in Oregon my whole life. Um, when you live in Oregon, you have to figure out a reason to live here other than the rain. <laughs> because it rains about 940 days out of the year here, um, at least in Eugene. Where I grew up in Salem, it rained um, all, all the time. That's, this was just, you have to find a reason to live here. This is why we live here. Have you ever um, grown Oregon tomatoes? You know, as an Oregonian, Oregonians know these tomatoes. You know when you get your hands in the tomato plant and that smell on your hands? You know that smell? It, that, there's nothing like that. I mean, it, it, and it goes with you wherever you go. You can't wash it off. It's in your soul forever. I love Oregon tomatoes. And when we grow our tomatoes, I mean, look at those tomatoes. You can't eat those and tell me there's no God. Look at those tomatoes. In the summer times, we have people who come over to our homes. We grow these tomatoes. We have people who come over to our homes and, and, and we'll serve these tomatoes. You cut them off the vine. They're warm. You just slice them, put a little salt on there. You put it out there. And we'll, we'll serve them to people that come over to our house for dinner. And every summer, there will be somebody who will say, I don't like tomatoes. And I will say, I don't care. <laughs> and I will put these tomatoes right in front of them. <laughs> Friends, I spend my life serving young people. I spend my life as a missionary. I'm a professor, but really I'm a missionary. And I got to tell you, there are moments it feels like, there are moments it feels like, Everyone right now is walking away from religion. It feels like that. It feels like just everybody's leaving. Everybody's walking away. And whenever I am tempted to just want to give up and give up hope, I remember my tomatoes. Because when I have somebody who's sitting in front of me who says, I don't like tomatoes, and I serve them tomatoes, they will eat the tomatoes, and they will look at me, and they will say, these are tomatoes? And I will say, these are tomatoes. And they will say, I like tomatoes. <laughs> You know what I've learned? You know what I learned? You know what I learned? People don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes. And they've spent their life thinking those are the exact same things. We live in a moment in time where it feels like a lot of people are walking away from religion. And I want to say, praise God, because religion is not the same thing as Jesus Christ. People are hungry for God. And maybe sometimes they've equated bad tomatoes with the real ones. And I want to say, our task at this moment in history is not to hold forth fake religion. It is to hold forth Jesus. And I got to tell you, when somebody's walked away from religion and they taste Jesus for the first time, they really fall in love with Jesus. For those in the room, I want to conclude by saying this. I'm going to take some questions. I've gone way too long. I feel like saying this. 
I'm going to guess that some of us in the room have had some family members or even kids who have walked away from their faith. And I want to say to the parents, to the siblings, the grandparents in this room who have seen people walk away, I want to say this. Remain faithful to Jesus and be a safe person for those people to ask you any question that they want. Just be there. Be available. And don't freak out when they ask you questions. Because the sign of a really good parent is that you can have a kid ask you questions like, do you walk while you do it? (laughs) Be a safe person for people to ask any question they want. And be rooted in your identity in God. 